think if he's got any semblance of authenticity, if people are going to think that he actually sort of does things that he believes in, he needs to be out there in the hustings. He needs to be out there as Prime Minister giving the Yes campaign the support that he says that he's going to give it. Is it on? Look, I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. No, wait, it, it is on? Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I don't like it. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Well, may we say God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of BuzzFeed Australia's political podcast, Is It On? We are recording this on the morning of Friday the 8th of September. My name is Alice Workman, I'm in Canberra and Lane Sainty is joining me from Sydney. Hello Lane. Hey Alice. And Lane, Australia is having a postal survey on same-sex marriage. It is official. It is official. It's um, as official as a wedding ceremony. <laughs> now, Lane, you've just returned from three days covering the High Court in Melbourne where they gave the green light to the Postal Survey. Uh, how, how was that? How was it being in the High Court? Alice, it was actually so interesting to hear the arguments before the High Court. I don't know if it's everyone's cup of tea. It was very legal. I mean, it wasn't really about the the merits of same-sex marriage or anything like that at all. It was uh, quite dense funding arguments. But just being there, seeing the judges, seeing this all unfold, it was a really, really interesting week. And I'm excited to tell you about it in more depth later. Mm, Excellent. Well, it's been a long week in Parliament. Um, Can you believe that at the start of the week... We had Bill Shorten producing papers proving that he wasn't a dual citizen and had renounced his British citizenship before he was elected in 2007. That was only a few days ago. It feels like years ago now. Alice, it does. It feels like it, feels like it happened in 2007. Oh, my gosh. I know. All right. Well, we'll get to everything uh, big with the High Court in a minute. But first, what have we got on the show this week? We have a huge show this week. You have been so busy doing all these interviews while I've been sitting in a courtroom in Melbourne. We have guests right across the political space. Spectrum. We chat to the groups behind the lost High Court challenge against the same-sex marriage postal survey, including Green Senator Janet Rice. And who else have we got on the show, Alice? Well, we've also got Labor Senator Murray Watt on the drug testing trial. And for something completely different, I sat down with Liberal Senator Linda Reynolds about Wagsit. Have you have you heard about Wagsit, Lane? Wagsit? Like Brexit? Yes, yes. W-A exit. I will explain later. But first, we've got a lot to get through, so... Let's crack on with this week's Fast Five, Fast Five, number one, Lane. That's right. Number one is the High Court challenge to the Postal Survey. This week, the High Court gave the government the green light to carry out its voluntary postal survey on same-sex marriage. Now, this is great news for the government because they've already started printing the ballots and they're going to start sending them out from Tuesday. So both legal challenges were shot down by all seven High Court judges on Thursday. It was unanimous. It was a huge victory for the government. One of the challenges was from Tasmanian Independent MP Andrew Wilkie, lesbian mum of three, Felicity Marlowe, and Shelley Argent from PFLAG. And the second one was from Australian Marriage Equality and Green Senator Janet Rice. And they were arguing that the government had acted unlawfully by not passing the funding for the survey through the parliament, the $122 million, instead using a special reserve of cash set aside for matters that are urgent and unforeseen. Now, we don't know why the court decided the way they did, and we won't know for a while until they hand down their reasons, which is this long document that explains all of their legal reasoning. We likely won't get that for a few weeks. 
But as we've said, I was at the High Court in Melbourne this week and when this decision was handed down, I spoke to a woman called Jackie Tomlins outside the court. Jackie and her wife Sarah are one of the two couples that actually prompted John Howard to change the Marriage Act way back in 2004 after they tried to get their Canadian marriage recognised in Australia. So here's Jackie just after the decision was handed down. Could you describe the scene for me from your perspective of from when it was handed down? Yes. Uh, Well, the judges came in. Everybody was very nervous uh, and uh, apprehensive. But personally, I was still a little bit hopeful uh, that that we were going to win this and not have to live through this awful postal vote. Uh, I was also a little bit concerned about when they give the direction about whether or not we would actually all very clearly understand it because it was uh, a lot of... Um, legalistic jargon and yeah. it's actually quite difficult to follow and having been in the High Court for the last two days I've worked that out and yes. Sarah, my partner who was a lawyer, sitting next to me uh, but they just started, it all happened extremely quickly yeah. and it was actually very clear mm-hmm. and they made the first point and I just looked at Sarah and said no and she did a thumbs down and then the next two, three, four points followed very quickly, yep. and I got to the end and I just looked at her and I said, we lost. Darling, go for it. Um, and I just said, we lost. And she said, yep. And I said, what? We just lost everything completely. And she said, yep. And uh, that was quite shocking and really quite awful, to be honest. Yeah. How, how let down do you feel as someone who's been engaging with this process, I mean, since it really started in Australia? Yeah, um, I, I, you know, I, I'm almost speechless and I'm not speechless very often. <laughs> I, I, I never, in my heart, I never thought we would actually have to live through this process. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, you either get it or you don't how awful this is. And I think pretty much everybody in the community gets it and I think many of our allies get it yeah but I think that the the damage done potentially in the next eight weeks is enormous and for me um, I think my focus in the next eight weeks is going to be looking after people and making sure that our community takes care of itself that we take care of each other yeah that we do whatever we can to protect those people in our community who are more vulnerable. So we know that the focus of the opposition is going to be on our kids, on the kids of Rainbow families. We know that young LGBTI kids are going to be enormously vulnerable throughout this time. We know that the trans and gender diverse community uh, will also cop it. So uh, that's, for me, that's what I'm thinking about now. And I, I will fall in a heap for a day or two and then I will pick myself up and I will look around and I know there's going to be a massive, massive push for a yes vote and I think that's fantastic and I think there's lots and lots of people who are already prepared to be to do that and, yeah. that, and that's great. But uh, right now, right now in the raw thick of it, yeah. I, I just worry about our community. Yeah. And the other women who are here, I know some of them and I don't know yeah. Are you kind of a group of mums from Rainbow Families? Yes, mostly, yes, okay. yes, broadly. Um, yeah. I mean, these are people that I've known for years that we've all known each other through Rainbow Families. We've all got kids who are yeah. about similar age. You okay, know, as right. are, uh, mine and Sarah's are 10, 12 and 14. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we've, we've been doing this for a while and I think that, you know, 
Uh, it's lovely. It's lovely that we have that community, and yeah. I think and the Rambo family's community is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And I think that you know there is a high level of anxiety. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Yeah. But um, people are also ready and prepared to step up and do whatever we need to do yeah. to make sure that our kids get through this and the more vulnerable people within our community get through this as unscathed as possible. So, Alice, this decision in the High Court was obviously very difficult for the advocates who have been trying to stop this survey from going ahead, but we also saw a really quick pivot from the Yes campaign immediately after the decision came down. There was very little wound licking. Most of the plaintiffs retired to a pub around the corner and had a drink. Some went and started campaigning for Yes at train stations. The Yes campaign rolled an ad out. They were all ready to go. And Alice, it is now well and truly on. So where we go from here, the survey forms will be sent out from Tuesday, due back on the 7th of November, and then a result by the 15th of November. Then if it's a yes, they'll have to pass legislation through Parliament. If it's a no, we won't talk about it for maybe, I don't know, a week, a couple of days. (laughs) Then it'll become a huge issue in next election. So it's over. We will speak to uh, Green Senator Janet Rice a bit later in the podcast. But Alice, what's number two? Number two is Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull spoke to US President Donald Trump for 30 minutes on the phone on Wednesday morning about... North Korea. Now, the PM said the call was about bringing North Korea to its senses. And of course, this has all come after the suspected nuclear weapons test was uh, conducted by North Korea. Now, Malcolm Turnbull says that he and he and the Donald discussed the importance of the full enforcement of the current sanctions on the North Korean regime and the importance of additional sanctions, which they're considering at the moment, being imposed in the future. But China was also discussed because, of course, China holds the biggest lever to resolving the situation by putting economic sanctions on King John but it sounds like they also talked a bit about the US-Australian alliance and here is what the PM said at a press conference after the phone call we have America's back America has our back we are joined at the hip and if there is an attack on America we will come to America's aid and if there is attack on Australia America will come to our aid well you know fingers crossed Lane but we all know what happened last time the PM had a chat with Donald Trump over the phone Someone hung up maybe on someone else. But this time, the (laughs) Prime Minister was asked how how the phone call went and he described it as, and this is a direct quote, a very good call, very warm discussion, very constructive. Uh, Sounding a bit like the Donald there and we all know that he does like to do a (laughs) Donald impression. But, Lane, we won't know for sure what exactly happened in the phone call until, you know, someone in the Trump administration leaks the transcript. What is Number three. Number three, Alice, is energy wars. So the Liddell Power Station in New South Wales is due to close in 2022. And the energy market operator warned in a report this week that this will place extra pressure on Australia's power supply. On Tuesday, the Prime Minister stood up in Parliament during question time and declared that he and Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg had entered discussions with the owner of that power station, AGL, to keep the power station open for at least another five years after 2022. Then, Tony Abbott tweeted that it was good that AGL is no longer getting out of coal, to which AGL CEO Andy Vesey tweeted back at Abbott, We are getting out of coal. We committed to the closure of the Liddell Power Station in 2022, the end of its operating life. Then, the former resources minister and former Italian, Matt Canavan... tweeted back what a joke you say you're getting out of coal in 2050 anyway alice the drama on the tweets it was 
the drama on the tweets was off chops. So after seeing all this drama on his timeline, Turnbull called Vessi up to be all like, what, what the hell, mate? And the PM has since said that while he understands AGL is committed to closing the station in 2022, he is now in discussions with AGL to get the company to sell the station to a responsible partner to keep it going. It's not clear whether this means the government will buy it or not, but the PM has said he thinks it is better off in private ownership. Okay, so that is all the drama around energy. Alice, what is number four? I think the PM needs to sit down for a cold one with uh, the, the energy chiefs and, and really nut this one out. Another, another meeting. That's I what we agree. Need, <laughs> yeah, less tweets, more meets. <laughs> less tweets, more meets. Okay, number four <laughs> is the burka ban. It's back. It's back in the news lane. Now, I want you to cast your mind back to a month ago when One Nation leader Pauline Hanson wore a burka into the Senate. It was, of course, a stunt to highlight her policy to ban the burka from being worn in Australia. Well, this coming weekend... Probably, as people are listening to this, the Nationals are meeting in Canberra. So the Nationals are the other political party that make up the coalition with the, the government, uh, the Liberal Party. Now, the Nationals are going to be voting on whether they should change their party policy to the same as One Nation's to ban the burqa and other face coverings in public places and government buildings. The motion has been put forward by Rogue Queensland MP George Christensen, and he needs 75% of the federal conference Uh, to make it party policy, but he thinks he's got the 300 votes to do it. So basically his motion is that he wants to stop face coverings, so burkas, balaclavas, masks, being worn in Parliament, Centrelink, Medicare offices, government buildings, because he says they pose a security risk and are, quote, not conducive to friendly relations. Now, here's what he told The Australian this week. Obviously people think, what are they hiding? And therein lies the security issue. If you don't know who is under the veil, if you don't know what's under the veil, anything could happen. So if the motion is passed and becomes national's policy, it would put a bit of pressure on the Prime Minister to support a crackdown in facial coverings. But we'll have to wait and see on that one. Alice, we're going back to you for number five. What is it? Okay, number five this week is about the government's plan to drug test people on welfare. Now, for a bit of background, the way the parliament works is... The government proposes an idea, so for example, to test 5,000 young people on Centrelink for illicit drugs, and if they test positive, 80% of their payments will be put on a cashless debit card. Now, before Parliament votes on whether or not to go ahead with this idea and implement it, it goes to a committee stage, which is where experts, academics, welfare groups, all sorts of people give evidence on what they think of the idea and how they think the government's proposal will work. Then that committee write a report and tell the government what they should do. They give recommendations. So... This week, a Liberal-dominated Senate committee handed down a report into the welfare drug testing trial. And, Lane, they gave one recommendation. It should go Mm -hmm. ahead. This is despite welfare drug testing being almost universally condemned by drug and alcohol experts, doctors, academics, different welfare groups. It was even called misguided by the Prime Minister's favourite charity. Needless to say, Labor and the Greens aren't happy. So I thought I'd get one of them on to explain exactly where they think the government's gone wrong here. Murray Watt is a Labor senator from Queensland who was on the committee looking into the drug trial and he wrote Labor's dissenting report. Senator, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Alice. I should say quite a number of other people helped with that report, so I can't take all the credit. One one of the senators (laughs) that that contributed to the report. Now, in your dissenting report, you said that uh, the Liberal-dominated report ignored overwhelming evidence presented by the experts to recommend that the trial go ahead. So they basically just ignored everything that was 
that was heard at the committee. What what are some of the evidence that, that you think that they ignored? Yeah, well, Labor took a position quite early after the introduction of this bill that we would oppose the drug testing because the feedback we were getting on getting very early on from doctors and health experts was that uh, this drug testing proposal would be very harmful, and that was confirmed in the inquiry. So we had many witnesses come forward from the medical profession and other health experts, uh, and unanimously their view was that the drug testing, uh, rather than helping people with drug and alcohol problems, would actually make their situation worse. So the sort of evidence we got was that um, it was likely to drive up levels of addiction further, uh, that people would avoid uh, using the types of drugs that are going to be tested and potentially turn to drugs that might not be picked up in the test but might actually be more harmful, some th- synthetic drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also some of the evidence was that it was very likely uh, that the drug testing would lead to increased crime rates because the argument that was put to us by health experts was that if you ad- if you are addicted to drugs and you lose a certain amount of, of cash at your disposal through what the government's planning to do, you're going to need to find a fix somehow. You're going to need to find cash to find the fix, and it's actually going to mean an increase in crime. So, so rather than uh, apply for welfare and potentially get testing positive that you would skip that altogether and just turn to crime. That's right. That, that, that was certainly one part of it, that people might just give up taking welfare and uh, just you know resort entirely to crime to feed every habit of theirs and feed, feed their, um, their, their mouths as well. Um, but uh, one, I really remember the evidence that we got from Matt Noffs from the Ted, Ted Noffs Foundation. They've obviously got a very long history in working with drug and alcohol addicted young people in particular. And he, he was crystal clear. He was saying, if this goes through, crime will go up people will rob your homes it was there was no no gray area for, for him uh, for him and he's got a lot more experience in this area than I think any politician does and we should be listening to people like that mm, one of the other things that we reported on last week that the committee heard was that uh, the government have kind of buried one of the one of the alcohol drug and alcohol expert reports that says that currently the demand uh, for rehabilitation for people with addictions to drug and alcohol, uh, it, it's not being met. 50% of people that want to get treatment can't get treatment. And the government, do, what do they tell the committee? That they haven't figured they out how long the report. waiting period Yeah, well, be. so there, there was one really strange piece of evidence, which was that we, we learned that there is a report prepared by a federal body about the level of drug and alcohol services around the country. And for some reason, the government hasn't been willing to release that yet. Uh, we actually just dealt with that in the Senate today by demanding that they produce this report because, you know, it's one of the things we need to know is if you're going to actually be drug testing people and theoretically sending them off for rehab, what services are actually available? So it does look that there are now going to be some steps taken to try to get that information out there. But leaving that aside, it's very clear from all of the evidence that is available that there is nowhere near enough drug and alcohol counselling and rehab services around Australia. Uh, we Really worrying was that uh, the the department admitted that they had no idea what the waiting lists for drug and alcohol treatment were in the three trial sites. Um, they had made some efforts to find out what drug and alcohol services were available in the three trial sites, being Logan, uh, Bankstown, I think it is, and Mandurah and WA, but they didn't know anything about how long people are waiting. And what the experts were telling us was that it's fine for people to be referred off to services, but if there's not enough services, they're actually just going to displace someone else who's in the queue waiting for services. So you're actually not helping anyone and there's still people going without. 
uh, one of the other experts who gave evidence told us that you know the amount of money that the government was putting on the table to increase drug and alcohol services as part of this trial was nowhere near enough, wasn't going to go anywhere near meeting the needs that would, would arise. But also, it's not as if there's some you know, surplus number of drug and alcohol counsellors sitting out there waiting for a job. There are no skilled professionals available to deliver this rehab treatment for people by the date that the trial is supposed to be starting up and running. So I don't know where they're going to get the uh, the drug and alcohol rehab professionals that they're going to need mm, to treat these people. There's a massive shortfall. Are you concerned this sets a precedent for uh, evidence lacking initiatives to go ahead? Yeah, look, I mean, I think we have to be honest that this was all designed to get a headline in the middle of the budget. This this initiative was announced by Scott Morrison, the Treasurer, in his budget speech. And, you know, as you would expect, certain media outlets ran with it. And that was the big headline, you know, the next day. It was clearly a political move uh, from the government. And look, we're realistic. We understand that you know, there's a there's a large percentage of the of the population who thinks this is a good idea. Sixty five percent. Yeah, it's it's a very high percentage. And you know, on my Facebook site, when I've been making comments, I get people uh, coming back and saying, you know, why should my taxes go and pay for someone else's drugs? Mm. Um, but the point is that if what I think these people are really concerned about is they want to actually see people off drugs and alcohol. And as I say, the evidence is clear that it won't work. That this isn't the right way to yeah. do it. So, you don't think that sixty five percent of people being in favour of it is by default, a mandate to say to the government, well, go ahead and do it? Well, I think that, that those sort of surveys were done before some of this evidence has come out. That, mm. uh, that the, And I think once people hear that every single health expert who treats people in this field says it's not going to work, I think people are going to think, well, why am I wasting my taxpayers' money on setting up a trial that's not going to work? Uh, shouldn't if, if, we, if the government's going to put money into something, sounds like they should be putting more money into drug and alcohol rehab rather than just punishing people. So what's the future with the, with the drug testing? Do you think that the trial will go ahead? Will it get the support in the Senate? Labor's obviously not backing it. The Greens aren't backing it. But Question marks over what the Nick Xenophon team's doing. Yeah, as with all of these bills these days, it depends what a small number of crossbench senators think. And uh, we're certainly, you know, in negotiation with the Xenophon team. Uh, it, it probably will come down to them. Uh, I think, I don't know if Pauline Hanson has said anything about it, but I expect she probably will support the government like she does 88% of the time or whatever the figure is. Um, but so the Xenophon team will be really pivotal. I, I think they're still making up their mind. So I'd in, certainly encourage your listeners to get in contact with Xenophon senators and, and make their views known. You know, yeah, I, I spoke to Nick and he said they were going to decide in the next week. But mm. they sound like they're a little bit fed up with the government. They came out punching hard on the media law reforms yeah. this week. So we'll have to wait and see on that one, I think. Yeah, no, it, it's an interesting time. I mean, uh, this week we've been sort of waiting for a whole range of legislation to get rolled through in the Senate, whether it be the media reforms, this drug testing stuff, the citizenship bills. But clearly the government is having trouble convincing the Xenophon team that they should get on board. And it's not surprising because each of those proposals that I just talked about has got massive problems with it. And, you know, the evidence is against the drug testing. The evidence is against the citizenship changes that Peter Dutton wants. Um, there's a lot of good reasons to not go ahead with the media reforms. So let's hope that the Xenophon team, you know, really maintains their senses and, and holds the line. Senator, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Alice. Great to be here. That was Labor Senator Murray Watt there. And as he mentioned, the make or break for this Centrelink drug testing trial is with the Senate crossbench and Nick Xenophon team. So they don't know what they're doing yet. They haven't announced it. I've been asking them. They said they haven't made up their minds. They're still negotiating with the government. I mean, they're negotiating on a lot of things. So, you know, it's a little bit of horse trading happening. But watch this space. We will find out soon whether or not this drug trial will go ahead. 
that will be very interesting to keep an eye on. And one of the losing plaintiffs in the High Court's decision is Green Senator Janet Rice. And you sat down with her pretty much directly after we heard what the court ruled Mm. to get the news. Australia will have a postal survey on same-sex marriage after the High Court rejected two legal challenges against the controversial ballot. Green Senator Janet Rice, who was part of one of the legal challenges, along with Australian Marriage Equality, joins me now. Senator, we've just heard the High Court's decision minutes ago. Yes. What's your reaction? Look... It would have been good not to be in this situation. It would have been good to have won and then we wouldn't be having people's human rights being put to a public vote. But given that that's now where we're at, the way forward is very clear. And so, you know, just really ramping up the campaign from here on to get out the vote for people to choose love and vote yes. And we're on to it. So from here on forward, the Greens are just going to dedicate themselves to the Yes campaign? Yes. You know, we've been ramping up the Yes campaign over the last month because we couldn't wait for the High Court challenge before starting. So there are already thousands, if not tens of thousands, of Greens volunteers around the country who are ready to be out there. They've already been campaigning. They've already been on the phones. They've been at railway stations. So now it's just going to be really getting that campaign incredibly fired up. And we know that the majority of Australians support marriage equality. The big issue is is going to be getting them out to, to put their votes in their envelopes and to get those envelopes into a letterbox. And as long as they do that, I'm really convinced that we're going to have an overwhelming um, vote for the for voting yes and choosing love. Are you worried at all that the, uh, the, the maybe the yes campaign has been set back because so much time has been devoted into these high court challenges? No, I think the, the campaign has had its two prongs. So there's been a huge campaign. I mean, I was at an event in Melbourne last weekend that had 170 people that were there trying to, um, who were finding out what they could be doing to help with the campaign. So the High Court challenge has sort of been a bit of a, a side um, stream, really. So obviously myself as a plaintiff, I've been particularly involved in that. Now, you know, now it's over. Would it, we would have preferred a different outcome, but now it's over. Those two streams are going to come together and you it's really going to be a massive campaign, I think, like Australia has never seen before. Um, as part of the uh, High Court's decision, uh, you as a plaintiff have been ordered to pay costs. Do you know what that will entail yet? No, or? I don't yet know what that means. I know that our barristers, um, their work was pro bono um, for us if we lost, so there won't be costs from us. So it'll be the government's costs that um, AME that will for. be up for. Yes. Do you think that that was a reaction of the, the High Court judges to say this was a silly case to bring in the first place? Look, we'll, we'll find that, we'll, you know, find out what their reasons were later. I haven't don't have any information so quickly after the decision to know what the, the basis of awarding costs against us were. Now, for people who may be listening and don't know your background, your partner Penny is a trans woman and if she was legally to change her sex, your marriage would then become illegal under current Australian law. That's right. So for Penny, she her birth certificate still says that she's male. Um, she transitioned after we were married. We've been married for 31 years, happily married, happily still in love. But what that means for Penny is that her birth certificate just sits in the bottom drawer and is totally useless as an identity document for her. And if she wanted to change that, which she should be able to, everyone should be able to have a birth certificate that's, that's relevant and valid for them. But if she was going to do that under the current law, we would have to get divorced, which is just crazy. Um, 
you know, that said, I still feel very privileged that we are actually one of the very few same-sex couples that's been legally married in Australia, and my heart goes out for all of those other people that haven't been able to marry, who have been, you know, engaged for 20 years. I've met so many of those people, people who have been, who have died before being able to be married. So, you know, for, for all sorts of people, reaching marriage equality is, is so long overdue. One of the things that the no campaign, so the uh, the conservative in Australian politics have come out and said is that, uh, you know, the, the yes campaign are kind of centering their message on, uh, you know, vote yes, vote love. But a lot of the traditionalists, in quotation marks, say that traditional marriage is not about love. It's about longevity and children and all those things. What, as someone that's been married for 31 years, how, how would you respond Look, to that? I think marriage is about, you know, it's a special relationship, absolutely, between two people that love each other. But it's clearly not about children. It's not, and it's not because, you know, so many people who are married who don't have children, mm. yes, it's about longevity, but the longevity of a same-sex relationship is just as likely to be a long-lasting relationship as, as a heterosexual relationship. So I think, you know, the no campaigners, they're stuck in their very uh, it's a religious view of marriage and it's not the view of marriage that mainstream that most of Australia subscribe to marriage has changed over the years and it's changed a long way from what their view of marriage is now look I'm very happy for those people who have that religious view of marriage for them to maintain it but don't impose that view on the rest of us the rest of us you know basically marriage is is to celebrate a relationship, to have that relationship equally recognised under the law as all other marriages in our country. If anyone listening can hear that buzzing, that's the Senator's phone absolutely blowing up after this High Court decision. I wanted to just quickly ask you about what's going to happen next. So the ballots are going out on Tuesday, but you're going to enter into a process with the government negotiating. Uh, what, what are they going to do about advertising and, and how um, and how those uh, protections will be put in place for the campaign? But I mean, we found out today that anti-gay ads won't be policed. They will be allowed to go ahead. So what are you going to ask the government in this legislation? What do you want to see? Right. At the very least, what we understand the government is proposing in this legislation is bringing over from the Australian Electoral Commission legislation some of the same provisos, the number one being that any material that's relevant to the ballot will have to be authorised. So at least if people are putting up really hatred, homophobic, awful things, that we know who's done it. So that's the main thing that this legislation will do. And with the authorisation, what that would, I mean... That would allow you to figure out who it was, but would that no, wouldn't allow you to do doesn't, anything? Doesn't allow them to do anything. And I, yeah. I asked the AEC this morning that you know if the sort of horrible posters and the social media posts that we've seen over the, the last month, the neo-Nazi posters, the neo-Nazi yeah. posters, they even if we had had AEC legislation covering those, it wouldn't have allowed the AEC to do anything about their content. So some of the things that we want to see, I would like to see in this legislation, are actually some controls over vilification and about truth in advertising as well. And there's some legislation I understand in the state parliament in South Australia um, that covers truth in advertising, and that's the sort of things that we're going to be discussing with the government to see whether we can get that um, into this legislation, which would strengthen it in... um, in quite significantly um, and certainly enable us to at least protect people somewhat from otherwise what are going to be, you know, some pretty hurtful, horrible stuff as we've seen over the last few weeks. But you're looking for a compromise. You're not planning to block 
No, look, we will, we will support legislation regardless of what it is because at okay. least getting that authorisation is really important. So we will be supporting that, but we would certainly be putting to the government that there needs to be more in this legislation than what we understand they're currently proposing. Speaking of, of these ads, which, which you've described as harmful, you've got two sons. How are you preparing them for the campaign? Look, I think it's all of us just supporting each other and being surrounded by people who are going to tell them that they are loved. And certainly our two sons know that and they, they've got that support. But I really feel for you know young gay people, people out there in regional communities who haven't got the support of their family, they are going to need to have the whole community come up and surround them and let them know that they are loved and supported as well and to give them and to help build that resilience against some of the attacks that they're likely to, to, to have over the, the coming weeks. Well, Senator, the name of the podcast is Is It On?, which is, of course, a reference to leadership spills. How do you think this is going to play out for Malcolm Turnbull's leadership in the Liberal Party? Yes, I mean, by the fact that they are going to have this postal plebiscite, it does enable the Liberal Party to get over this difficulty over marriage, which has been threatening to tear them apart. So it's probably going to be helpful for him, but I can't think it's going to save his leadership. I mean, he's... We'll, we'll see whether he comes out and campaigns strongly in favour of marriage equality through this this campaign. I mean, that would probably be good for him, but it's, there's no certainty he's going to do that either. So, you know, yeah, who well, knows? He's, he's got, rejected... got lots of other things on his plate as well. <laughs> well, he's rejected, Labor's, he's rejected Labor's call to, uh, you know, co-author a letter to all the Australian people mm. telling them to vote yes. So are you expecting to see him out on the, on I the would, I, I think he needs to be. And I think if he's got any semblance of authenticity, if people are going to think that he actually sort of does things that he believes in, he needs to be out there in the hustings. He needs to be out there as Prime Minister giving the Yes campaign the support that he says that he, he's going to give it. That's going to be something that's really going to help it to, to be... that would help sort of build the support in the community for people who um, you know, might be wavering to feel that it's got the support of the Prime Minister. And I call upon the Prime Minister to do that. Senator, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. I like the woman. I like the woman. I like the woman. That was Green Senator Janet Rice there, and she mentioned how the plaintiffs will have to pay costs. We found out today from a report in the Daily Telegraph that the government is estimating their costs are going to be over $300,000, and uh, both uh, of the losing challenges will have to pay half to, to three quarters of those costs. So there's some big money that uh, they're going to have to fork out for, for bringing this all to the high court line. Yeah, there is some big money involved. From what I understand, the two challenges have been fundraising quite significantly over the past few weeks to actually cover these costs. And from from what they're kind of saying, they're not too worried about being able to cover them. I suppose the question there is, this is money that may have otherwise been donated to the Yes campaign as opposed to the legal challenges. So that is, you know, it's done now, but that's something that they're probably going to have to kind of reckon with in, in terms of funds. Well, the High Court has taken up most of the new cycle this week, Lane, but uh, I wanted to talk briefly about something rather unusual usual that happened last weekend in Western Australia. The state Liberal Party voted to explore what it would take for the state to secede from Federation. That's right, you heard me correctly. The WA Liberals want to split from Australia and form their own country, financially independent state. And they're calling it, Lane, Wagsit. Wagsit. Wagsit, like Brexit. Yes, W-A-X-I-T. like it sounds like it could also be some kind of um, like hair removal product. <laughs> like 
<laughs> hairy legs. Wax it. De- it. it definitely um, does. It definitely <laughs> does. Right. So what happened was at the state Liberal Party conference, they voted eighty nine to seventy three to set up a committee to look into the state becoming completely financially independent from the Commonwealth of Australia. So they're going to spend the next 10 months exploring how this would work. I'm joined now by West Australian Liberal Senator Linda Reynolds, who was at this state party conference. Senator, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure. Good morning. Now, I have to kick off with something that happened in the last weekend at the WA State Liberal Conference. They voted to explore what it would take for the state to secede from Federation. They're calling it Wagsit. Is that right? Wagsit? Yes, it is. <laughs> um, what, where has this come from? It's, I think it's taken a lot of people by surprise. Well, it's taken no one in West Australia by surprise. This is something that is very deeply felt uh, by West Australians and this is not n- nothing new. So West Australia was the last ter- colony to agree to join the Federation mm-hmm. because we were concerned about financial arrangements. West Australians uh, voted in 1933-34 to secede and and that was rejected by the United Kingdom. It was. And the sentiment has been not far from the surface since then. And while people can make make light of it, mm-hmm. it does it does represent very deeply held um, concerns and feeling of unfairness in Western Australia. So do you support the the motion to explore financially seceding? so I should I should say it's not to start a new country. No, it's to be financially independent. Well, I, under- I certainly understand the sentiment because the way West Australia is currently treated in a range of areas, particularly with you know, getting, only getting 34 cents back of the GST we raise, is simply not fair. And something does have to happen and I think there is now increasing momentum federally to fix that. Certainly the Prime Minister, the Treasurer, uh, he hears from my federal colleagues all the time. Mm. And, but the question is, we've got to bring other states with us and states who are currently receiving a large amount of our financial largesse obviously are not necessarily very motivated to, to do what's right. So you weren't in the room, you were flying to Canberra for, for this city. I week. was, yes. And look, I understand the sentiment. I am a very proud Australian and I think we're much better together as a federation. But the point I keep making is it's got to be a fair one. Mm. So would you have voted in favour of the motion if you'd been in the room? No. Okay. Well, I think that, that, that there was a motion, uh, there was a, uh, it was brought up in the, in the lower house earlier this week and, and there weren't too many people from the Liberal Party speaking on behalf of it in the building, but the sentiment is obviously very strong within the, within the state WA party. The sentiment is very, very strong in the state Liberal Party, but you talk to any West Australian mm. and it runs very, very deep. Would it just be uh, in terms of if it was potentially to ever happen, they're going to explore it over 10 months. What would it actually mean? Well, that's what they're, that's what they're having a look at now, what exactly <laughs> right. would it mean? And some of the things that we think need to be addressed is that in West Australia, we're very entrepreneurial, we're very commercially focused, and we export a lot. And we take risks. So we take risks with WA taxpayers' money. You know, for 50 years, we've been investing in establishing our iron ore industry, but that's not really recognised. Um, so we you know, we explore for gas, whereas other states don't. So because we invest in not only West Australia's financial future but the nation's financial future, we think that those you know, West Australians who do contribute and you know, we do a lot of the heavy lifting for the rest of the country, that needs to be deserved. 
Mm, wax it. Something to watch. Now, moving on to something that I think very rarely gets talked about in Parliament, and that's sport. But um, this week you uh, successfully got an inquiry up into the Australian Rugby Union's decision to kick out the Western Force out of the competition. So for anyone that might not be aware of what's happened to Western Force, can you give me a quick rundown of how we got to where we are? Well, that's what we're having the inquiry now. The Senate agreed to have an inquiry into the future of uh, the Australian Rugby Union as a result of Western Force being summarily kicked out of the league. And... It is not transparent in terms of why they made that decision and how they came to that decision because any objective you know, analysis or look at this says that Western Force should never have been you know, rejected. They have a huge community support base in West Australia. They're financial. You know, six of the Bledisloe Cup players were from Western Force mm. and there is just – in fact, they're the second best performing team. So it is not clear at all why that decision was made. And as a senator for Western Australia, I saw the devastation. I went to the rally where there were 8,000 really devastated Western Force supporters there. You know, the players were in tears and something had to be done. So I think this is a perfect inquiry for the Senate to have a look at what actually happened and why. And, you know, this federal it's federally funded, this sport. So is there any um, – so the inquiry will look at, at how they came to the decision, but what is there any potential uh, for the inquiry to move for something to happen, whether federal funding be curbed until they remedy and put them back in the, back in the league? Or Well, that's one of the things we'll look at. So the first thing is before Western Force and the, <clears throat> the future of uh, rugby in West Australia is determined, we actually need to know what happened, mm. and that is what is not clear. And so the first thing the inquiry will seek to do is to find out exactly what happened and why it happened, what were the financial circumstances that led the ARU to make this decision, and then we'll have a look at... So that first thing will give some answers to Australian rugby fans and the players to at least understand what happened and why, which is very important. And the second thing is once that information comes out, we can then have a look at what the implications for rugby union is in in Australia because you can't cut a team like that out of the league and have no implications for all of the other teams and players and fans. Mm, the state government in WA said that they're considering suing the ARU for, I think it was $100 million. Is that? Do you agree with them to... Do you think suing is the right option, the next step? Well, I think it's something on the table because West Australian taxpayers, so this is West Australian taxpayers, have invested $120 million in the future of uh, rugby union in Western Australia through uh, refurbishments of their oval, the NIB Stadium, and also building Western Force and Rugby WA headquarters. They did that in good faith that this sport would continue. Mm. And to have the rug pulled out like this so quickly and so cruelly, um, of course they'll be looking at suing because it is a breach. At a minimum, it's a breach of faith. Do you think that there is a, a certain element of these decisions being made on the East Coast and the West Coast gets ignored? Absolutely. The rally that we had just over two weeks ago, um, 8,000 people were there, not a single person from the ARU board, not one, could be bothered to fly over to Western Australia to explain what happened and to look the team and the players in the eye, not one. And that is a story I get over and over and over again is the unwillingness to engage not only in this sport but in other you know, in other areas. 
So that only, uh, coming back to the first thing we talked about, that only enhances you know, Western Australians' resentment mm. that we sometimes are a bit forgotten. Well, I'm sensing a theme here that it feels like WA feels left out of the national conversation. Quite often we are. And as a, as a senator, how does that make you feel, having to, to come in and, and lobby to your colleagues about trying to get more... Get more money, get more, get more whatever you want for WA. Well, that's my job. And that's my <laughs> job as a senator for the great state of Western Australia is to come here and do, you know, push for things like this inquiry now to make sure that we're not forgotten and that we understand what happens and why. Now, the mining uh, magnate uh, Twiggy Forrest has mm. come out and said he might set up a rebel competition similar to what uh, Rupert Murdoch did with the Super League or what Kerry Packer did with World Series Cricket. Do you support... Mm a second league happening or do you just want to see Western Force back in the original league? Look, I've, I haven't made up my mind yet. I actually want to hear what the evidence is first and I want to understand what's happened and why and see if there is any opportunity or way that we can have Western Force reinstated into mm. the National League. But if not, then, you know, we have to look at alternatives because the we've got a huge rugby union community in Western Australia who want to su- support the sport. Mm, and, and they just want something to support. Absolutely. Um, now, there's been some call for people to boycott the Wallabies game on the weekend. A lot mm. of Western Force fans have said they would. Are you are you joining them? Are you going to boycott the Wallabies game? I will be there to support our players and our team. So I will definitely be there. But you, you said to me that you're not particularly a sports fan. But uh, why, why rugby union? Why are you championing their cause? Well, yes, I must confess that I am a bit of a sport tragic, not in the good way. Um <laughs> But I will be going there on Saturday. I will be supporting our team and it's, it's important. You know, mm. they, I've got to show my support and I'll be there. Now, finally, Senator, the name of the podcast is Is It On?, which is, of course, a reference to leadership spills. We're always hearing talk around these corridors about something happening, someone doing numbers. Uh, so what do, what do you think? Do you think it's on? Is it on anywhere in, in Parliament? I think it's absolutely on and I'd look to my Labor colleagues <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of chat and discussion at the moment. You should have just seen uh, what was you know, discussed in the question time in the Senate the last three days. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely on. It's definitely on. Well, Senator Linda Penny Reynolds. Penny Wong, watch out. Oh, well, <laughs> well, Penny Wong, you've been put on notice. Uh, Senator Linda Reynolds, thanks so much for joining us on the You're podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you. WA Liberal Senator Linda Reynolds there, making the case lane for potentially why we might need a WA Prime Minister. You know, the West, the West feels like they've been neglected. Maybe uh, is it on Christian Porter, perhaps? What do you think? Mm, WA Prime Minister Christian Porter. Yeah, I can see that happening. Well, Linda Reynolds is one to watch because uh, after that interview, she told me that she's also pushing at the moment for WA to get into the space game, a space station in WA. (laughs) WA is just really pushing the boundaries here. Will wax it actually happen this time around? It's unlikely. The Liberal State President Norman Moore said it was, quote, potentially pie in the sky and he couldn't imagine the federal government would ever relinquish any power. But like Lynn Rendell said, it's all about WA getting a bigger share of the GST. Um, But finally, of course, the Labor Party, not missing a beat here, have jumped on board and saying, (laughs) look, really, this is all just another vote of no confidence in our Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. All right, well, this has been a Chock-A-Block episode, so let's crack on with Bin Juice. These are the stories we didn't think got enough attention this week. Lane, what is in your Bin Juice? 
Well, something that definitely didn't get enough attention this week amid all the other craziness was the story of Clinton Pryor, who is also known as the Spirit Walker. He's a 27-year-old First Nations man, and he spent the last year walking 6,000 kilometres across Australia from Perth to Canberra via Uluru. Clinton wanted to walk across the country to deliver the First People's message to Parliament. His demands include end the NT intervention, stop the expansion of the cashless welfare card, for Parliament to begin and adequately fund treaty negotiations, acknowledge Aboriginal sovereignty, the abolition of the hand-picked government advisory body, the Indigenous Advisory Council, in favour of creating a First Nations body, and the government to support homeland communities who are under threat of losing funding in favour of larger centres or have already been closed down. So Clinton walked all the way to Canberra and met with a bunch of politicians, but he described his meeting with Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull as rude and disappointing. He said it was so disrespectful that he turned his back and walked away. He told our BuzzFeed colleague Amy McGuire that the PM was talking back and it sounded like it was a debate like it was on the PM's terms. And they disagreed over the cashless welfare card that quarantines 80% of a person's welfare payment, which the PM announced last week would be rolled out to a third site in WA. All of the places with the card have high Indigenous populations. And Clinton also had a disagreement with Labor leader Bill Shorten because Shorten posted on Facebook that Clinton had spoken to him about his pain that Aboriginal people were not recognised in the Constitution. But he doesn't support constitutional recognition. He supports a treaty which is viewed by international countries. So Clinton was understandably disappointed that he walked 6,000 kilometres and his concerns fell on deaf ears. And if you have a look at Amy Maguire's uh, article, you can see an actual picture of Clinton turning his back on the Prime Minister. It's a really powerful picture because you can see the look on his face of just disappointment in having met the leader of the country and, and him, frankly, not really listening. Yeah, definitely go and have a read of Amy's article. And Alice, what's your bin juice? All right, well, we've had a pretty full-on episode, a lot of, lot of issues canvas. so I thought I'd end mm-hmm. uh, with something a little bit lighter for my bin juice. Now, if people aren't aware, there is an excellent TV program on the ABC called Utopia, which is about a fictional government department called Nations Building Australia, who basically uh, tell the government what infrastructure that they should be building. So, you know, roads, airports, things like that, what they should be spending their money on. Uh, It's a fantastic show that absolutely roasts the public service and I highly recommend it. Well, for some reason this week, the creator of that show from The Working Dog Company, so you might remember them making Frontline and they did Hollow Men, which is another great political show, and also the film The Dish and The Castle. Well, the guy that's behind Utopia, Rob Sitch, uh, for anyone playing at home might remember him as Mike Moore from Frontline. Rob Sitch, for some reason, went on Andrew Bolt's show, the right-wing commentator Andrew Bolt, his show on Sky News called The Bolt Report, to talk about the intersection of comedy and politics and how he thinks his show is a reflection on the Turnbull government. And you know what? It was really interesting. Uh, here's some of what happened. I think comedy, full stop, is, is a bit allergic to BS. Um, that's probably where, where it lives, where if it doesn't add up, that's, that's what comedy is. A, is, in a, is it's about observations. Right? Well, I'm going to trust my arm then, right? And you'll probably slap me down. I agree. Comedy is against pretension. You know, the, the banana skin someone's brought down to earth, ha-ha, right? Why are so many comedians like stand-up, my son's into stand-up, um, of the left, when I think if you want a tidal wave of BS right now, it is coming generally from the left. I mean, global warming is an inherently funny subject, the alarmism. Yeah. And where's, where, where are the shows? Well, the overclaiming. 
the overclaiming. Yeah. Tim think, Flannery is a, is a walking joke. Well, it's... But I... See, I find that all that quite partisan, because that's what I call the pantomime, is that you can't get... You can't get cut through, you can't get traction if you come out and say, look, you know, there's two sides, let's, you know... It's too, it's too... You've got to come... On the up. one hand and on the other. No, no, no. no just give me the one hand. You. You're not going to get applauded on Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, you just know that the answer's got to be twice as long because I've only got time for the one hand. I don't have time I, for the I other. I, look, sometimes I try reason debate with people and... Reason and, debate? Yeah, no, what an anachronism I, you are. Seriously, I watch people glaze over and I realise I could never go into politics. Um, and, that, and that... I think that that's... I think you... you I think the game is taking sides, and, and that's why I think a lot of politicians are ex-debaters, because you know when you're at school and people would say, okay, which side am I on? Uh, I think that women should not have the vote. Okay, well, I'll wind up... I know you've got the wrong card. You're on the other oh, sorry, team. sorry. I mean, no, <laughs> but it's true. Uh, so that was Rob Sitch and Andrew Bolt there um, having a yarn <laughs> about comedy and politics. <laughs> what, what a time. Um, Amazing. And this season has, of Utopia has just wrapped up, uh, and it's hilarious. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it, checking it out. But... Lane, that's all we've got time for this week. What a packed show. Oh, I know. I want to say a big thank you to our producer, Nick Ray. Thank you, Nick. Also to Josh Taylor, Nicola Harvey, Richard James, Peter Holmes, and the whole pod team. A big thank you to Rode Microphones for supporting the podcast as well. Now you can go to buzzfeed.com slash is it on to subscribe. Someone has pointed out to us that, Lane, we are not on buzzfeed.com slash podcasts. Yes, we're uh, not. That is about to change. That is a mistake and that is about to change. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so don't go to buzzfeed.com slash podcast. Go to buzzfeed.com slash is it on or, of course, you can subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcasting app, leave a rating and a review. And I have to say, the reviews are in Lane Sainty and everyone is given five stars to you as the new co-host. I'm so excited to have you on board. Everyone's loving your stuff. Well, okay. That's very nice to hear. Um. <laughs> well, we'll be back next week. Lane will be here with me in Canberra yes. with another Cracker episode from Parliament House because Parliament is sitting next week. Um, but you know what, guys? We also want you to, to get involved and tell us who you think we should be talking to or what issues you want us to be talking about. I'm at Workman Alice on Twitter. She's at Lane Sainty. We're both also on Facebook. Um, finally. Uh, I, I'm not. A, d- don't try and find me on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't have a public Facebook. Um, oh, sorry, don't find Lane on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook and I'll pass you messages on Twitter. Find me on Twitter. I'm um, always on Twitter. Now, we've heard we've heard the feedback about Gallery Whispers. It's been mixed, but look, I'm going to sizzle. We're gonna, it's going to be in next week. We're going to do Gallery Whispers next week, Lane. <gasps> are we? So I want everyone to prepare themselves. Okay. Yeah, uh, listeners, I, I did not know this. I'm finding out at the same time as you. <laughs> yeah. This is very exciting. Yeah, we're gonna, I've just decided just now. Just right now, I've okay. just decided. We're going to okay. bring it so back. So please send us whispers. Um, please send us your gallery whispers. Let's, let's stop whispering and get to the central part of this podcast. Alice, is it on? Look, you know what? Uh, Malcolm Turnbull's had a big win this week with the postal survey going ahead. I think that he would have been shaky if it hadn't, if it had been knocked down by the High Court. But no, it's going ahead. So I think Malcolm's pretty safe for now. But let's all see what happens when the results roll in on November. Yeah, that will be a big test because he said he won't campaign, and uh, he, mm-hmm. he's voting yes, but he won't campaign. So if there is a no result, he will be seen as the prime minister that lost the. Postal survey, not really a plebiscite. He can add that to his um, his referendum <laughs> loss in 1999. <laughs> two big notches on the belt. <laughs> two, two, two big missed opportunities for Malcolm Turnbull to, to get the public to support his position. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. Okay, all right, everyone. Maybe maybe taking it to the people isn't <laughs> isn't his thing. Um, but let's see how it goes. But let's see. Let's see how we go. All right, that's all we got time for. Thank you so much, Lane Sainty. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Mm-hmm.